Welcome back. Today, we've got a conversation between Neha Jain and Paul. Originally from Pune, India, Neha studied journalism in Bangalore before working at Google for five years. Paul asks her about how she landed her job at Google and why she decided to found and manage Zero Circle, her own startup, in 2020 after nearly a decade of consulting and marketing work. Neha is emblematic for someone who lives in the triangle of power, wealth and purpose and the conversation is fascinating, especially for anyone who wants to be independent and create a change at the same time. So without further ado, let's hear it, Paul. Neha, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to have you here today. Thank you, Paul. I'm very, very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Neha, um, we have introduced you a little bit and your background, but uh, since most of our listeners are around the age of 20, um, we'd be interested in who was Neha when she was 20? So that was a while back. Um, Neha at the age of 20 was a very lethargic person um, sitting in a college campus, surviving on a lot of cup noodles. Um, however, um, there was also a Neha that was uh, interested in what was taught in college. I was actually pursuing a journalism degree at that point. Um, I was interested in advertising. The closest um, degree um, or the course that I wanted to was media studies, and that came close uh, at that point. However, when um, whenever it comes uh, to the close of the semester, one thing that I look forward to was uh, doing a lot of internships. Um, I did internships almost at the end of every semester. So that was someone who I was at the age of 20. And uh, so you mentioned already when you were at university, you did a lot of internships. And now when we talk about university, people have all kinds of different advice and what they took away from university. Um, if you look back now, uh, given also your professional experience and when you are hiring now for, for your startup yourself, what do you look at in a university? Are those people that have excellent grades, super cool internships? Are they great networkers? I don't know, did they have a job or so did something entrepreneurial or just develop their own interests and, and had a lot of fun at uni? Like, what were your takeaways? What would you, what advice would you give to 20 year olds today? The way I um, was at the university and I sort of have the same empathy to people who are at the university is um, I was somebody who was lethargic at the same time restless and that may seems like a dissonance um, and that was primarily because I was looking for doing things that really interested me. It was also the time when I was um, looking at a lot of careers but not necessarily to build my career but to get a lot of lived experiences um, and uh, it was also the time when India as a country was giving out a lot of career options and that were not just limited to engineering and medicine and banking and consulting. So the world was opening up and, uh, you know, and I wanted to just, uh, you know, not be, you know, fearful about building a career at the age of 20. Um, I wanted to sort of do everything um to really know what I want to do and what I don't want to do. So going back to your question about how exactly would I go about hiring people who are just coming out of universities, I think I look at motivation. Um, I look at people who are motivated at the same time are not afraid of putting in a lot of hard work. Uh, a lot of uh, students at this age uh, are spoiled for choices, uh, whether I should do this or that, and, and they don't you know, I, I think in terms of the commitment um, could sometimes be flaky. 
So I look for people who are motivated, um, even at that phase in their life, because your motivations change because you change as people. Um, so I think it's uh, very, very critical for me to understand what's your motivation and how committed you are at that point in life um, to you know, work for that cause. And now, personally, when you were at university, what like what was your main focus during that time? So I grew up uh, watching cricket and not enjoying cricket, uh, being an Indian. Uh, that was very rare. Uh, I, I think I used to wait for uh, ads to come in uh, between uh, innings. Um, so I kind of knew that advertising is something that I'm really interested in. Um, and while pursuing journalism, I think, and, and interning at uh, advertising agencies, one thing I knew is that's really not a career choice for me because sometimes aptitude is also important, uh, at least in creative uh, works. Uh, but what came out as interest was um, analytical thinking that goes behind marketing. Um, and that's uh, something that stuck around. But being in journalism also uh, took me away towards social sciences um, and being a little more rooted to the world uh, and the world around me. So it was a lot of serendipity and a lot of accidents that happened at the same time. Uh, and, and I let life happen to me. I, I didn't necessarily have a very straight focus that this is really what I want to do. This is what I want to be when I'm 25. And, you know, this is what I want to be 30. I think those were the people that I would run away from um, who spoke like that. I, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just that was that wasn't me. And then, um, and then you went for out of university into your first job. You start working at Google. How did that come about, and what did you do there? Um, I think even that was uh, part of uh, uh, you know bit bit of an accident. Uh, I wanted to sort of uh, I had plans for the day with my friends. Um, and I was very clear that I wanted to take up social sciences after I complete my um, you know university. Um, but uh, my friends wanted to attend the presentation at Google, um, and you know I I went along with them, um, and you know and and then just one thing led to another, and uh, I think my experience with um, advertising and in, in, in you know during my internships that really helped. Um, so by the time I finished my university, I had a job from Google. And I was at that point when I had to decide whether I really wanted to sort of get into, you know, social sciences or look at a corporate career. Um, in the, in hindsight, uh, I'm glad that I did that. Um, and, you know, I've, I've come a full circle. Uh, I am working on environmental sciences and, and building a, uh, you know, a product, but, um, Google was something that was absolutely important. Um, so I wouldn't, if I had to go back in time, I wouldn't change anything. No, it sounds like, um, you know, working in university, doing internships every, every break, then starting at Google. I mean, what a prestigious first job. Seems like you hustled quite a bit in the, in the beginning of your career. Um, and, and worked a lot and maybe put your personal life, um, on the backtrack. Would you say, like knowing now what you learned from it, the network you got from it and uh, all all the the effort that you put into it, did that pay out now? Or would you say, honestly, I could have chilled more back then, focused more on other things? No, absolutely not. I think every bit of uh, my time at Google was precious. Um, I learned a lot in terms of uh, how to build a company, uh, work culture. Um, but I think the most exciting thing about uh, working at Google at that point was um, having a product focus. Um, a lot of companies are not able to 
build a good culture at the same time build a product focus in their employees um and and that became a very crucial thing while doing critical thinking while building out a product that i am doing and i have done in my life so while the network that google gives and and you know the the prestige that comes with uh, working with a company like that is important it's uh, it's the mindset that uh, evolves with you so you know once a googler always a googler and that you can't take away from people so and you know every time you meet somebody who has spent enough time there um has always taken away uh, uh you know something very important for their life you started at google and now a couple of years later you are you founded your own climate tech company as a social science major a uh, former tech person now you're doing deep 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 climate tech tell us a bit about the journey in between before we start delving into into your current journey um so i left google um a long time ago i left uh, google in 2011 um after i left google um i left without a plan um i wanted to do something in sustainability back in the day then uh there were not a lot of companies that were actually working about uh, working on climate with a tech focus um there were a lot of ngos there was a lot of work that was happening in terms of action and propaganda um and um, you know my plans derailed and i started another company uh, which was india's first uh, midnight delivery startup uh, which would deliver in 30 minutes and this is uh, prior to a lot of uh, logistics tech companies that have come in in india um, it was a little early for its time um, so i um uh, moved back to the corporate job uh, but you know someone who never wanted to be an entrepreneur has been i am a second time entrepreneur now um so i went back to the corporate life i went back to marketing uh, i did what i did really well but somewhere in me i really wanted to do um what i was not able to pin down and say that this is the cause that i'm i really believe in um so i did my bits um, you know i um um i worked uh, on a pro bono basis on a lot of tech projects i built iot products um, i worked with architects i worked with uh, people who are uh, doing studies on a landfill um and as a personal project um you know years ago almost 10 years ago i read an article about the student in ucla who lived a waste free lifestyle and had zero waste coming out and you know i was really motivated that i could do something like that um and absolutely i wash you know i think i did much worse than i started out uh, you know uh, with the, the amount of waste and that that you know really triggered a series of events that led to zero circle um i uh, i started collecting waste in my house i was uh, looking for recyclers you know you see these documentaries where you know people in the us and in uh, in europe who drive down to the recycler and give out their waste things like that don't happen in asia um i mean even if they they do uh, it's not something that i could come across um i begged uh, recyclers municipalities civic bodies to take away the waste um i did not give away the waste to the civic bodies that do uh, collect this waste uh, on a on a regular basis because i know that's really you know meant for a landfill um and for eight whole months i collected that waste in my own apartment um you know so when we talk about consumer choices and making that consumer choice i have uh, beca- i became an eco warrior <laughs> um and i realized that even if you 
try to do that uh, very consciously. It's impossible to do that. Um, and you need to make many industrial changes uh, before the product reaches you. Um, so I lessons learned. So that's really sort of uh, took me uh, towards my journey towards zero sum. Now we're circling around it, and we're circling around the 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 journey you're doing now, um, the the thing you're building, which is zero circle. Tell the listeners, uh, what is zero circle? Um, how did you come up with it? Uh, I mean, we know the story to the problem now, but uh, how did you come up with that solution that you built? Uh, tell us a bit about your startup. So Zero Circle is a company, is a material science company based in India. Uh, it was founded in 2020 in uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, at Zero Circle, we take seaweed as the feedstock and uh, we make ocean safe materials, particularly plastics uh, that replaces the thin films, uh, thin films that, uh, you know, become your carry bags that become your the jacket of your noodles, uh, the thin films that um, wrap a lot of your cartons. Thin films that come in many, many forms. It's almost like invisible plastic that you don't end up seeing. Um, and it's becoming the biggest cause for marine litter and landfills. So that's that's the material that we are currently building at Zero Circle. Um, how we went about uh, building that out was uh, quite a story. <laughs> Tell us. Um, I, I think the, the first... The first moment uh, when this happened was, uh, you know, I uh, I found seaweed. Seaweed as a feedstock is um, is a magic feedstock because uh, for you to make any material in the world, you need something, a raw material, a resource. And if you're going to move away from non-renewables and move to renewable, uh, even renewable uh, resources require millions of years to renew. Right. So if you're looking at agriculture as your feedstock, uh, it requires land, it requires water, it requires fertilizer. And when I came across seaweed, uh, seaweed did not require any of the problems. So when you talk about moving away from fossil fuel to something which is bio-based, uh, I think this seemed to have really you know, cracked um, open many, many options. But uh, the question really was that what do you want to solve with seaweed as a biomass? What can you make out of that? Um, so I reached out to one of the scientists uh, who was working in Mumbai. He was the Department of Biotechnology uh, head. Um, and I reached out to him and within two weeks, he was a very, very motivated uh, scientist, uh, you know, who was closer to his retirement. Uh, and I kidnapped him and we said, uh, you know, seaweed is such a fantastic resource. Why are we not growing more of it in India? We've got, you know, coastal areas which uh, which which is which is uh, sort of covered the you know par- uh, partly like two thirds of our country. Um, so we went coast to coast all all across uh, India. Um, you know, largely on the western side of uh, of uh, the Indian uh, coastal line, and we found many many villages where we could actually grow this. Um, but the question really was, who's going to grow this, and and how do you really build in uh, a local community angle to this? Um, so we walked into a village, which is a really, really small village. Um, and we met the, the village head. Um, uh, within a couple of hours of having tea with that person, uh, we convinced the entire village, and mind you, the entire village to actually, uh, work with us on seaweed cultivation. And the reason was, uh, because there's so much migration that's happening in rural, um, coastal areas. Um, there's absolutely no fish left in the sea. Um, and most of the adults in the, in the, in these villages have moved away to do their MBAs or, you know, for jobs uh, in bigger cities. 
So to uh, bring in really young adults and old people and women uh, together to sort of uh, create a secondary um, uh, livelihood options in the same uh, exact place where they were doing their fishing. And in fact, it's even easier because it's a near shore activity. You don't really have to go into the high seas. Um, two weeks later from that conversation, we got some seedling material. We planted that in the sea and it was growing beautifully. And then, boom, pandemic happens. Um, at the same time, we were actually, um, you know, while, you know, we did this whole cost calculation that, yeah, you can grow this material, but how exactly, um, who's exactly going to buy this, right? Because if you want to uh, capture carbon from seaweed, um, someone needs to buy this material. Someone needs to do something with it because you want to sort of hold the carbon and put it into a product for a longer period of time. Um, and that's when my struggles with plastic sort of came together. Uh, it was happening almost at the same time. Um, so at the same university where I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, working with Dr. Reddy, I worked with a lot of chemists uh, and these were materials scientists um, to really understand what are the possibilities and what's been showcased uh, at a research level um, of possibilities that can be made out of it. And we made this Petri dish seaweed film, uh, which, you know, gave us the promise that, yeah, you can make plastic out of it. Uh, but it was very, very far from being anything industrial. Yeah, so we really started out towards the end of 2020. Um, and uh, the biggest question was, uh, hey, Neha, so, you you know, you're, you're good at, you know, figuring out things, but, you know, who's really going to manage the chemistry? Who's going to pull this out? Uh, so in the same university, I started looking at PhD candidates who were really motivated to build this product um, and were working with bio-based materials. So with that network in the university, I got the team together. Um, but the question really was, where do we cook? Uh, because everything shut down. Uh, nobody's going to give you access. Even, even universities were shut. So we found this uh, town, which is outskirts of, uh, you know, West Bengal, uh, a, a place which was, I think, um, uh, which was uh, the industry forgot to abandon it completely. Uh, so we, we, we went to that uh, location, a very, very remote location, and we started cooking there. So the first prototype that really came out was uh, was in that uh, in that lab, if you want to call that. Um, um, yeah. So it was sort of like a mill uh, which had a QA lab, which you know uh, should have been you know shut down, but we ended up using it. So that's where the first prototype came about uh, for Zero Circles. So, yeah. So that's the short story of it. Well, what a really inspiring story. Walk us through your typical work day. Uh, I don't know um, if I would accompany you from eight to eight. Uh, what would I see you working on? So I think the the day starts with um, you know a lot of calls, but you know keeping the calls aside, uh, walking into the lab. Uh, something that we've established at a gram scale needs to be scaled up to a kilogram scale. Yesterday, something that was working beautifully um, is not working out today. Um, or we were doing a trial and the machine just stops working. Um, so all the plans that I have set out uh, for the entire month uh, just have gone for a toss because the machine manufacturer is on a holiday and it's going to take another two weeks for us to just sort of sit duds. So, you know, it, they may not be the funny moments, but at the same time, um, it's just that little, little things that come in the way. Um, but the, uh, the most exciting moments is when you start talking to a brand and they're like, oh my God, where were you guys all this while? You know, we've been looking to switch our packaging. 
Um, there are experiences, good and bad again. I mean, they're not always great experiences. Uh, we talk to very large brands and they have 500 requirements in terms of what they want in their packaging and they want it to behave exactly like plastic, right? Um, at the same time, there are brands that we talk to which are D2C brands, which are clean tech brands, and they're willing to change just about anything for us uh, for to make this happen. Uh, we're, we're, we're working with a brand, um, I may not be able to name them right now, but they, um, they're, they're a snowboard brand. And the most exciting thing they said was, guys, if you can make this work, I'm willing to change my packaging line, right? I mean, we don't want them to do that. But if a brand says that, um, and they are actually um, uh, people who are making the market, they're the most revolutionary people who have worked in the outdoor sports uh, when brands like that actually change things uh, for the market, I think even the market follows. And that's very encouraging. So my day typically is, uh, you know, about, you know, working on the sales side, you know, making sure that R&D is in process, are set up in terms of a manufacturing permissions to get the um, the machines ongoing. Um, you know, when you're setting up manufacturing, it's a whole new ball game, you know, that I haven't experienced before in my life. Um, so every day is just learning. Every day is talking to a hundred people and solving a hundred problems at the same time. I don't have that one problem that I solve. I solve like hundred problems and sometimes I do a good job of it. Sometimes I don't necessarily do a very good job of it. So I have another day to go at it. Awesome. And now to go back a bit to the target group, which is people in their in the beginning of the career or even still in university figuring out well, what do i actually want to do with my life um and if you had to present the profession of being a founder um or an entrepreneur um what i'm hearing from your stories is you need a lot of resilience i think that is the skill, the skill number one but uh apart from that tell us what are the the skills the characteristics a good founder should have and maybe also some stuff you definitely shouldn't have or she I think the most important thing um, before you want to become a founder or you want to start solving a problem is identifying a problem. And don't try to solve a problem that you don't personally feel annoyed about uh, or you don't necessarily think it's your problem, it's someone else's problem, but it's a great idea and let me fix that because I think I have the ability. I think um, it's very important that you personally feel for the problem and that's where resilience comes from. Because if you don't feel that there is a problem that annoys you every day, you're not going to be motivated. And it's a, it's, it's a long run. You're not going to solve this problem tomorrow. You're not going to solve a problem in a year's time. And at every stage of your uh, company, um, even if uh, you're not making a lot of money, you're making a lot of revenue, you've reached the growth stage. Um, the company will evolve and, you know, one day regulatory changes will change the landscape and then you know, you, you still need to be motivated to change those things. So make sure that the problem is yours and not someone else's. I think that's where your resilience comes from. And be ready to pivot. Uh, don't have a very sticky mindset in terms of this is how I'm going to solve a problem. You, you need to solve the problem, but the solutions can be many and you need to figure out what's the right way of solving it uh, or what's the most fitting way of solving it. Because uh, even when I say right, uh, there are many ways you can call what is right or what is wrong. Um, try to solve what is right for the market at this point, because even the market changes, the consumers change, and the way they approach things also change. Look at the way we were approaching EVs 10 years ago and the way we look at it right now. So 
um, a lot of uh, the resistance that you will sense from the market and your buyers uh, would also change. So try to build a product for today and maybe for the near future and not very, very futuristic um, that will keep your uh, product honest uh, and people will be more accepting of it. Right. Now, the title of the podcast is Power, Wealth or Purpose. And it's kind of to understand when we choose our job and our profession and our path, what are the characteristics that will make that path a great one for, for us personally? Is it, you know, having a lot of uh, influence over what your decision, how much does it count? I mean, you will have a lot of that in your within your company. Wealth, um, I'm not sure if, if right now, but if you have a great exit, you will have a lot of wealth as well. And now, given the stories you told about the village and also the solution that uh, you're proposing, you also have a lot of purpose. So arguably in the metric that we proposed, you are as successful as can be. Um, now that's our naive view of something we have actually no idea about. Um, hence my question to you, what is professional success for you? Is it also a mix of power, wealth or purpose, or is it something very different? What makes Uh, what makes you happy and uh, what role does Power, Wealth or Purpose play in that understanding? I think, uh, you know, when I was um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, I think a lot of people um, um, drove their sense of purpose um, by working uh, in NGOs, um, um, which uh, is an absolute must um, for us to have in our ecosystem. Um, but for me personally, um, I did not want to um, lose out on my lifestyle. At the same time, compromise anything uh, that I wanted for my life. Uh, but my sense of purpose needed to be fulfilled in a certain way. Um, and a lot of people uh, usually think the sense of purpose comes from compromise. Um, and you need to let go of wealth and power um, and drive the purpose. Um, the way I would approach it is uh, drive your sense of purpose and the wealth and the fame and the, the power would follow. Uh, but, but do it in the way that gives you uh, the integrity and the peace. Um, and for me, it was important that, you know, I don't compromise on what I want from life. And that is why I built a product centric um, uh, solution. Uh, which meant it's for profit, it would sit in the industry and anyone who works with it or works on it or, or works for it would make money out of it. So uh, it's you don't need to ever compromise on your lifestyle or what you want in life or, you know, I mean, and, and, and whatever way you want, right? Some people want a lot of money. Some people want, uh, you know, just, you know, enough uh, to float. Uh, for me, I would say... Um, The expectation of money from my product is for everyone who's working on it um, and not just necessarily for me. Of course, uh, you know, I want this to be successful, but um, I want this to be successful from the way we want the impact to happen. Um, and the way I imagine the impact uh, would definitely make wealth um, and, and change the landscape. So I think that would be uh, my, my, my version of success for what I do. So now most of our guests came from Europe. Um, you bring in a new perspective from India. Um, when I was in India last summer for, for a while, I felt like the perception of what success is is, is a bit different um, and than I, I was socialized in. Um, what do you think are differences in how you, but also maybe in your team, in your university, people perceive uh, what professional success is 
in in India specifically and and in your ecosystem? Um, it's very personal. I think it also comes from uh, in which sector you work. Um, I think if you look at um, the ecosystem in the corporate side, uh, which is the IT sector, um, is almost in line with uh, the global north uh, in one way or the other. Um, in terms of how the brands are booming, um, the consumer tech, um, the consumer space in general, I think it's um, it's 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 almost at par at what you uh, want uh, or what you have seen in the West. And sometimes I would say that right now the Indian economy might be driving or probably is driving a lot of economies around the world. So it, the balance might be tilted more towards uh, the Indian landscape uh, in, you know, in the, n- n- not from a sense of nationalistic pride. I don't mean to say it like that, but I think um, a lot of things are changing um, and moving towards global south. Um, but when you talk about sciences, innovation, manufacturing, I think a lot needs to change. Uh, for the academia, for the academia, I think what's important is uh, fundamental research. Um, but when you look at entrepreneurs, it's impact at large. Um, so uh, when you look at the ecosystem of Europe, I think it's very, very tightly knit. Um, um, even in the US, uh, industrialization is one thing that's commonly talked about with fundamental research. Um, India does a great job of industrialization, anything. Uh, but fundamental research is not necessarily tied in with industrialization. And that's something that's changing right now uh, with the advent of climate tech, uh, be it renewables, be it uh, EVs and batteries. So I think a, a lot of uh, momentum has picked up. And, uh, you know, and, and because a lot of the manufacturing has started happening in this side of the world, um, the money is also flowing in differently. So we need to understand success uh, in terms of industry, a personal success for an entrepreneur and a personal success for a scientist, uh, they all sort of vary in equation. So when you're building a company, you're just sort of coming back to zero circle here. Um, you need to align all of these uh, together. Um, in Europe, um, there's a lot of personal freedom that you get when you're building a product. Uh, there are a lot of grants uh, that you end up getting. Um, the grants that we uh, get um, you know, are probably a tenth of what you'd get uh, just out of university if you're a spin-off from the US or EU. So, you know, if, if you just want to, you know, move the technology fast, um, just because you spend less doesn't necessarily mean um, you need less uh, to sort of have a technology that can change the landscape for the world. Um, so that's, that's, that's the difference that I uh, would want to call out. Neha, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, super inspiring what you're building in India. Um, and I think we all learned a bit about uh, how it is to be an entrepreneur, uh, the skills and the characteristics, um, but also, yeah, the challenges and the pressures of uh, being self-employed. So thank you so much for your time. Um, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it was my absolute pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Paul, what a lovely episode with Neha Jain. I loved it. I thought you guys had a fantastic conversation. The main thing that I took away was that to be a successful entrepreneur, you really need to find a problem that has to be yours. It can't be anyone else's. You need a personal connection to the problem because otherwise you won't be able to work on it with as much zeal or put as much time into it. I think Neha really found her problem and she made clear why that is really important. Yeah. And what I, speaking of personal connection, what I found so impressive about Neha is that I think she works at like 
the perfect intersection of power, wealth, and, and purpose. So founding a company that can revolutionize a whole industry, helping an Indian village to be alleviated from poverty. And on the same hand, she, she builds it for profit. So she, she has the chance to gain uh, immense wealth. Um, I think that just uh, sounds like the perfect job description. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great guest to have on this podcast for that reason. Another thing that came up, uh, which has come up before, is putting yourself in the position for opportunities to come your way. And the example that I take away from this conversation um, from her was her going to the Google presentation. So she wasn't really interested in it. Her friends told her about it. And so she just went along because she knew opportunities might arise from it. Um, it might be interesting. And then what do you know? Uh, she gets a job from it. And I think that's really some like a red line that's gone through all the interviews. Really put yourself in a position for opportunities to come your way and they will. And then don't be afraid to take them. And Neha seems to have taken that or ha have known that way before us anyway. Next week, Oscar had the great privilege to interview the finance minister of Saarland, a German state, Jakob von Weizsäcker. They talk about his path into politics, different types of politicians and many more interesting takes on the life of a public servant. Until then, we're always happy about feedback and we'll see you next week.